Get ready for the Synthesizer Library podcast. Because, let's face it, synthesizers are just cool. Hey, welcome back to the Synthesizer Library podcast. I'm glad you're back here listening to the show. As you may know, I've been doing this podcast for a few months now, all about synthesizers. My name is Adam Anderson, and I got to say, it's pretty exciting to hear the feedback. Every couple of days, I'm starting to hear from more and more people who are listening to the podcast, and sounds like people are digging it, so that's cool. Um, and actually, one particular person contacted, contacted me to let me know that on the Casio CZ podcast, um, I kind of skipped over the explanation that I had in my head, um, and now that I think about it, he's right. So, in, and what's great is he offered to record an explanation of how phase synthesis works, and he did a better job than I could. So, uh, we're going to take a moment here just at the beginning of the show, and we're going to listen to a great explanation of phase synthesis as a follow-up to the, the Casio CZ uh, podcast I did a couple of weeks, uh, months ago. So, let's hear from Lewis. Hey, Adam. This is Lewis, the author of the Digits and Phase 84 Phase Distortion Synthesizers. I'm enjoying your show a lot, but I wanted to tell your listeners in more detail about how the Phase Distortion Synthesis method in the Casio CZ episode works. Okay, so the CZ seeks to, for the most part, mimic the sound of a subtractive synthesizer. If you remember, subtractive synthesizers take a rich wave, like a sawtooth, and then they remove harmonics. And you can keep removing harmonics with that filter until you're left with pretty close to a sine wave sound. Well, instead of subtracting harmonics, the CZ adds them. It starts with a sine wave, or you know, more accurately, a cosine wave, and it can bend them into shapes such as the the uh, you know saw or the square. So you know, how does it do this? Well, to start, think about how a cosine wave looks. It starts off at a maximum value smoothly dips down to a minimum value at the halfway point and then smoothly rises again back to that maximum. But what would happen if we could play different parts of this wave at different speeds? You know, imagine for a second playing the first half of the wave very quickly so we hop almost instantly down to that minimum point, then to make up for how fast we've played the first half, play the second half at an even slower speed than we would have normally. You'd have a shape that jumps down to the minimum very quickly but then slowly rises back to the maximum. It would look just like a sawtooth. And if we only play the first half of the wave moderately quickly, and the second half of the wave moderately slowly, we'd get those in-between brightnesses. And that's essentially what the CZ does, although its synthesis technology also allows you to make crazy FM-sounding waves as well. You know, when you select two waveforms, what it's doing then is playing the first one alternating with the second, for that extra twangy digital sound. And then it's got those cool resonance waves. And I believe they work using oscillator sync with sine waves as the waveform. You might have noticed that if you've listened to the episode on oscillator sync, that sync sounds somewhat rough. And if you've tried sync yourself using something like, say, a triangle wave, you'll notice that when it resets the oscillator, it, you get little zappy sounds in, in the mix. But we can get rid of those by tapering the waveform off before it resets which means the waveform never jumps, which means 
it's always smooth sounding. And voila, you get something that sounds more or less like a resonance. Okay, so I hope I was able to explain at least a little bit how the CZ creates its sounds. Thanks Adam for having me on, and I'm looking forward to the next episode. Lewis, thanks for sending that in. That is just perfect. And I, I'm sure I can hear light bulbs going off in people's heads right now. Ah, I finally understand what it is. That's great. And anybody else who has feedback like that or explanations they want to send in, send them to me. Um, you can fill out the web form on synthlib.com or just email info at synthlib.com. I'm checking that email address more often now. Um, so yeah, let me know. And if you didn't happen to catch the name of Lewis's VST, that was Digits, D-I-G-I-T-S. And um, also the app, which I believe is only iOS, is Phase 84. And I was hoping, I was thinking when he first contacted me that I might say, hey, how about providing a coupon for your Digits? But it turns out it's a free download already. Um, so go ahead and download it. Look up Digits. It's a looks like a great instrument and a good way to get started with with phase distortion um now before we go any further i had this idea that um of doing a contest and i don't have any prizes to give away yet maybe i will at some point but for right now here's the contest i'm going to play a snippet of a synthesizer that i'm not going to cover in this episode but i plan to cover in a future episode and I want to see if anyone can guess what it is. And if you can guess what it is, then just tweet out the name of the synth to at synthlib on Twitter. And with the, with the hashtag mystery synth, sorry, mystery synth. Um, and so here it is. Hold on. Well, do you think you know what that is? If you do, you're amazing. I don't think I would be able to tell what it is. Um, a lot of different synths could sound like that, right? Well, just let's just see. Let's see if anybody can figure out what that is, and we'll give the answer next time. All right, almost seven minutes into the podcast, let's finally get to today's topic. And it's going to be a lightweight topic. Um, I've been kind of busy with running sound for a school play and things like that, but but I didn't want to leave you guys hanging without a podcast episode. So today's synth I'm going to show is the Roland RS-09. It's an organ and string machine. So let's have a listen. Sometimes it's nice to just have just a string machine around. Um, you don't have to go in and pull up a string patch or try to program that string sound. You just got a string machine waiting around to play just strings. Well, this one also does organ as well. And yeah, it doesn't really sound like uh, authentic strings, but it does sound like a good string synthesizer. That is a sound in and of its own these days, right? It has been for a long time. Um, 
And this one that I have, I've had for a year or so, and I actually, it came to me in pretty bad shape, and I spent quite a bit of time restoring it. And it's one of the ones with the colored button, so it's a slightly newer model than the really, really vintage one. And I really like it. Um, I don't know if you could tell if you're listening really closely. It is quite, not quite, but it is a bit noisy. There's some high-frequency buzz in there. And I don't know if that's normal. I've, I've heard that it is. And I'm thinking of trying to come up with a little filter to get rid of that. But what I usually just do is turn the output up all the way so that the signal to noise ratio works in my favor. You see, when you turn the synth down all the way, the noise is really the same level as it is as when you turn the synth up all the way. It varies very slightly. So if you turn it up all the way, then the the actual string and organ sound is going to be quite a bit louder than the noise. And when you bring it into a mix, you'll be able to hear more of the sound and a lot less of the noise. It might be tempting if you're using one of these and you hear it's kind of noisy or any noisy synth to, to try to turn down the synth to try to hide that noise. But really, you're doing yourself a disservice. It would work a lot better if you turn up, if you crank up the output so that the actual sound that you want to get from the synth comes through stronger than the noise. Of course, that's only true if the noise in your synth is, uh, like I described it, where it doesn't change much in volume when you change the volume of the synth output. All right, so well, anyway, hopefully you don't have noisy synths. Well, this one's pretty old, and it has some noise, but it, it works anyway. The other thing I've noticed with it is um, since it's high-frequency noise, it actually, when you turn the switch that controls the octave control of the synth, if it's on the lower setting, that high-frequency noise actually does shift down an octave and it becomes more uh, apparent. If you shift it up, the high frequency goes up even higher and you can hear it quite a bit less, especially if you have old ears like mine. Um, so that's another trick. Turn up, turn the octave switch up higher and turn the output up higher and then turn whatever you're sending it into, a mixer or an amplifier, bring that down. Um, yeah, hopefully if you have one of these, you've already discovered that. All right, let's look at the controls on the RSO9. There's not really a lot of them. Um, just beyond volume, there's a tone control, which I'm sure we know what that is. It's really just a filter, brighter or darker. And then there's a section uh, for vibrato, and it's kind of like a permanently mapped LFO on a, on a traditional synth mapped to um, vary the pitch. And this gives you traditional LFO-style controls, too. You have the delay time for when the vibrato kicks in. You have fa how fast it uh, operates or how fast the LFO operates. And then you have the depth. So, um, obviously, how far it detunes. And it's a really nice sounding vibrato. I, I've actually, a lot of times on vibra uh, vibrato on synths sound kind of hokey. This one sounds pretty nice, actually. Then there's the transpose switch, which I mentioned. It goes up or down an octave. And then you get into the organ section and the string section. And in the organ section, you have these four sliders that control the footage of the organ. If you're familiar with Hammond organs, for example, there's the, the draw bars, each of them have a different footage mark on them. The RSO9 has 8 foot, 4 foot, 2 foot, and 1 foot. And when the octave switch is enabled, then they all shift down to 16, 8, 4, and 2, I believe. 
But what it means to us is the eight foot, it acts as like the fundamental of the tone. And then you can add harmonics to the organ sound using the four, two, and one. You know, and some other organs like the Hammond organ might have odd harmonics and undertones and things like that. A lot more harmonics to choose from. Well, this just has those four, and they work pretty good. And then right next to the footing sliders, you've got organ one and two. Now, these are, I think, one is kind of a darker, lower sound, to me anyway, and two is bigger and brighter. And you can have them both on at the same time, and that gives you a big, huge organ sound. Here is organ one by itself, with all the sort of drawbars all the way open. just add in organ two. So here comes the really cool part. Right next to the organ one and organ two controls, there's something called ensemble, and that's available on the organ side and on the string side. And what that is, is actually Roland Chorus, which is kind of a f famous effect. It probably doesn't sound as great on the organ as it does on the strings, but I'll show it to you anyway. Here it is. It kind of makes the organ sound like strings, which is kind of silly. I usually turn it off on the organ if I'm using organ at all, and you turn it on on the strings. And that's what that first sample that I played, it was set up like that. So then let's talk about the string section. Um, there's not sliders like you'd have on the organ section, which kind of act like draw bars. You just have switches to turn on the eight foot or four foot string section. So those are basically an octave apart from each other. And then of course you do have the ensemble mode that lets you turn on the roll and chorus and an attack slider in the string area that you don't have on the organ side. So you can have the string section swell in and it makes it for a kind of nice effect when you have organ and string together where you when you first press the keys you get the organ sound and then the strings kind of swell in behind it so i think it's going to be easier to hear a difference between the different settings if i play them right in a row so i'm going to play the eight foot strings by themselves with the ensemble off then i'm going to add the four foot strings and then i'm going to turn the ensemble on and you can hear all of those pieces come together. So then beyond the string section, there's a control for the envelope release and then the mode of the envelope. So believe it or not, I didn't have the release up very high on any of these examples. You can make these, these string sounds just last forever. But then right next to it, this is the part that has, has puzzled me a little bit. There's the envelope mode one and two. It has to do with how the notes re-trigger when you're changing chords or changing notes. Generally, in mode one, it seems more smooth between uh, chord changes, whereas with mode two, you can kind of make the, the notes chop off a little bit if you're playing somewhat rhythmically. 
And then there's a toggle switch for ensemble mode. And it again is just labeled one and two. To me, mode one sounds more synthetic and mode two sounds more natural. I've been playing mode two this whole time when I've turned the, the ensemble mode on. So mode one almost sounds like there's a square wave behind the chorus that's controlling it. And mode two sounds more smooth where it's maybe a triangle or, or a sine wave that's controlling the chorus. I'm going to play an example, two examples. So first is you're going to hear mode one chorus, and then you'll hear mode two. And that might be pretty darn subtle if you're listening in your car or something like that. So just trust me, mode one sounds kind of a little bit slightly crazy and mode two is more smooth. And that really does it for the controls. There's also a tune control right on the front, which is nice. And here's another thing that's cool about the chorus on this unit. There's actually an input on the back of the synth for external audio in. And you can run an external signal through the chorus and end up using the synth like an effect box. So other things that are on the back, there's a sustain input, there's the usual stereo or mono outputs, and you can control whether they're, the level of those is high, medium, or low. And then there's a headphone output, and then there's this odd pair of uh, organ raw output and a gate output. And the manual talks about the possibility of hooking up these to some other synthesizer. Of course, they mention hooking it into the SH-1 uh, in the manual. But the idea is that you can then process the organ's output through the filter of a synthesizer, and you can trigger, you can control that filter using that synthesizer's envelope, and maybe you can control the envelope using the gate output from the RSO-9. The whole thing sounds kind of crazy to me. I'm not really sure how practical that is. But that really covers everything you could possibly want to know about the RS-09, I believe. And this podcast really isn't meant to be a review podcast. It's just kind of informational, but I still want to give a thumbs up for this one. I've really liked having it around. I think it sounds kind of strange, but kind of in a good way. Um, they're not really that expensive if you get out there as far as like vintage Roland gear goes. The, these are These can be had probably for only a few hundred dollars. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Um, don't forget about the super amazing, awesome contest and see if you can identify that little synth I played earlier. And I just maybe gave away a clue if I, because I said little synth. And anyway, I've got a few exciting things planned coming up for the podcast and for the site. So I hope you stick around and keep listening. And yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>